0: Welcome to the Professional Amateur Podcast, where I sit down and talk to people who found their passions in life, and listen to that little voice in their head that told them to follow it. Want to keep up to date with me and support the podcast at the same time? Sign up for the newsletter. I promise I won't spam you. Or maybe you just want to give me some money. You can do that a myriad of ways. You can go to patreon.com slash theprofessionalamateur, or, you know, just go to the link tree, Linktree.com slash pro.am.pod. Eric Hart is a tech account manager for LogRhythm, with a history of development and programming stemming very far back. So how do he become integral to co-creating LogRhythm tools and being at the forefront of information security for businesses around the world? By playing MUDs, of course. We sat down and talked about the path and passion of MUDs and what they pushed him towards in life as a developer and eventually into the InfoSec realm, and how something as simple as an old MUD, Black MUD, that he's currently an admin for, laid out a robust career path in information security. today on the podcast eric hart i've known you for a while since wow was a thing
1: yeah the days of wow yeah
0: um and i never got to really know you know you (laughs) because we were always just playing wow and doing that but tell me a little bit about yourself of what you do your current days (laughs) gotcha
2: yeah, so today I, I work in information security, but uh, a lot of jobs in information security are kind of for a corporation where you help defend that corporation from hackers. Uh, and I did that in the past, but today I work for a security vendor where we make security software. Uh, and for them, I manage a team of technical account managers. So that's pretty much the, the people in the company that can work with the customers that run our software and we know the technical ins and outs of how it works, the best ways to be able to use it, leverage it to really, uh, you know, catch hackers or people in the business that might be doing risky things. Uh, that's really the area that we, that
0: we work in in security. Hmm. So, you know, you, you, you see something like that. Basically, <laughs> if you look at it online, you see like a job posting for something like that. And you're like, that's, that's like f- future stuff because people don't realize that that's it's kind of what makes the world not the world go around but keeps the world spinning, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, because it is an integral part of any business, small or large. I mean, even a, a small business owner could use the help of somebody in in you know in infosec. So, but to get to where you are today you've had an interesting pathway to get there yeah Um, where did this this um love of technology start
2: in my teens i would say like uh i think my my parents or my mom really got a computer an ibm 8088 and i was probably like 10 you know somewhere in there and it was do not touch like you couldn't touch (laughs) that computer as a kid you know like there were times where like you know my mom would be mm-hmm. sitting in the chair right beside you and watch every key press you did and what the you know you can't touch it so what do you do if your parents are away for something for even if it's an hour i'm gonna turn that computer on and <laughs> we had a few games we had like police quest uh madden like the original I have the box right up here oh my god they OG oh, John Madden. Yeah, Load, load up on the, the floppies. Um, that might have came a little bit later on, but learned, you know, how to load up games from a command line or please quest was graphical, but to do anything, you had to type in commands. So it was like open locker. And I just remember as a kid, like typing away, like what's going to make this thing, let me progress. And it was just a brute force, you know. And every time I I figured something out, I could get a little bit further. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Um, yeah, uh,
0: you know, it's funny. I I had a a similar like a kind of like a path in the beginning where I kind of begged my parents for a computer, and I remember it was a it was a forty six twenty five. It was actually like IBM. It's IBM 46, That was all it was, <laughs> and they were we we were lucky because at the time uh, I was living in Hudson Valley. IBM they had their big factory there and uh, the big uh, uh, campus there in Poughkeepsie, I think it was. And our friend of the family worked there, so he got us like this beautiful, brand new personal computer for like seven hundred dollars instead of like three thousand dollars
2: they were expensive
0: how yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um i maybe got uh six months into it and i terrified my parents because i took it apart because i needed to know how it worked <laughs> 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 and luckily i put it back together and it worked still <laughs> but that it, it it picked my like interest of like hey I can do these cool things on it but how is it how is it even you know, how does it game? work yeah yeah
2: I got um, into that too but that was probably like probably 14 and I was you would classify it as a script kitty so <laughs> I knew like wares but back then I didn't know how to pronounce that I, I called it Juarez I thought I
0: think everyone called it Juarez back then <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's
2: like all, all pirate software somehow came from Mexico and I was yeah. like um <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know cult of the kid that De- cult of the dead cow was a thing so wow. I back Warfish and I'd run that software and mess with my friends and figure out how to find an IP address, which an IP was someone's computer. You didn't have a router. Um, So all that was intriguing and interesting as well as like the hardware side. So I dabbled in like, how can I make these things do things that they shouldn't like we didn't have internet for a while, but we had this free email service. Uh, I forget the name of it, but pretty much it would dial up long enough for you to check your mail and to send mail and wow but while you were on you could actually go to other places so Mm -hmm. i ended up finding a way to to make it hang (laughs) (laughs) so i would get about 30 minutes or so before it would drop me off and then i would have to just re-trigger my you know my loop to get it to hang again and i'd have 30 more minutes of, of internet uh that's until I, I figured out that my neighbor one day needed some help with her AOL and I social engineered and you know got her username and password. And that worked out good until <laughs> until she got banned uh, for <laughs> downloading that Warez stuff. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and those times you know, the Wild West days of the internet were always fantastic. Um, I got on pretty early in the 90s. I, I had prodigy before we had an actual isp in our area prodigy was really i mean it was trying to be aol because obviously it was like the big competitor uh but it was horrible and none of the uh, telephone numbers um, for anyone that's young listening to this none of the telephone numbers for prodigy were local so they were all long distance calls (laughs) so you had to be really um uh very uh use the internet very sparingly because you, you you don't want to um you know rack up a three hundred dollar phone bill not like that ever happened or anything but the
2: prodigy have the minutes too like, yeah. yeah
0: yeah um yeah that it, it was it was chaos before we actually had a local once we had a local isp it was pretty awesome because they they got in and actually were supporting fifty six k. Like wow. like right out of the gate in '95, and it was like um, night and day because <laughs> the other the Prodigy only supported 28 max, and most people maybe got like it would have like an odd number. It'd be like, oh, you're like I'm running at 1740. Yeah, don't know what that is, but that's what I'm running at. But um, what's funny is you said script kitty, and all I thought about there's there's two paths in in life that uh you, you either go down the path or you could walk them both simultaneously. But I walked the path of uh playing Diablo, the original Diablo online, yeah. and me and my buddy Chris he gave me a floppy disk with a whole bunch of stuff on it. And I was like, okay, what's on here? He's like, oh, when you load up and you log in, run this program, I'm like, okay. And like, all of a sudden you could kill people in town and you could do all these things. And I was like, oh, this is awesome.
2: Yeah. And,
0: and the trainers
2: exa- was one of them called like Bubba Fett or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 There, there, it became like, oh, this is really cool. And then he introduced me to you know IRC and yeah. and I was like oh this is really interesting now uh, all this time I've been going to these places to to download viruses basically <laughs> not not actual <laughs> anything um but here I could actually by running commands I could download directly from somebody else at really decent speeds on dial up and I was like I see where this is going i, I love it yeah um, that's a down the rabbit hole moment right there yeah um and it kind of opened up the world for me and you know it kind of brings me to something that is prevalent with you um it brought me to my first mud uh and for me uh, my first mud because i've always been a fallout fan it was uh, based off of wasteland called desolation and sadly, I don't think it's you know up anymore. I think uh, last time I played, I was working at iHeart Media, so seven or eight years ago was the last time I played. And still, like 15, 20, almost twenty years of, of playing on that mud, like um, a lot of people don't understand that, like that that experience is kind of the heart of all computer gaming it is yeah
2: i think it's like officially unofficial there's some mud code that seeped its way into like ultima online or everquest and things like that because the people that worked on muds you know once mmos and you know multiplayer rpgs became a thing they had the skill set you know they they Built all the systems and logic. So it was just marrying it up with graphics and now you have a video game.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why EverQuest took off the way it did. Because it was like graphically, yeah, you had your if anyone remembers the original EverQuest, it wasn't like it is today. It was a small viewport and you Mm had menus on both sides and a huge text box. And basically the text box was it was just a mud. I mean, there's really what was happening graphically correlated to what you were doing, but it really didn't. Like, combat wasn't what was happening. Like, combat, you just paid attention to the numbers and the misses and your crits and and all that. It's like, and then, you know, everything was all more text-based. It just happened to have this little graphical part of it. But the animation never synced up with what the numbers were showing you. It just showed you were in combat. Yep. It's like, oh, you swung, but actually like 10 rounds of action happened in that one swing. (laughs) Yeah, It's funny with EverQuest in that box, that's when I, I learned that
2: you can get sick playing a video game. So there was something about that layout or the frequency, but like I really wanted to play EverQuest. It was right up my alley, but 30 minutes in, or maybe when I first started playing, it took about an hour, but I would physically start feeling sick. And then I'd stop playing, and I'd start feeling better. I'm like, oh, I feel better. I'm going to go play some EverQuest. And then 30 minutes later, I start feeling sick. So it's almost like the wave of feeling just intensely sick would just keep coming back faster and faster. And then I finally realized, I'm like, it's EverQuest. It's making me sick. Mm-hmm. All right, back to the mud
0: I go. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of muds, when did you first discover getting it? Like, in, where did it pop up in your radar.
2: Yeah. I was in probably ninth grade. Uh had started in at a new school, you know, met some new friends and joined a, a local DD group. So first D D experience, you know, happened there. And I loved it. I was like, oh this game, there's so much, you know, it was DD 2.0 and I was playing a paladin and we played like once a week, maybe. And it wasn't enough for me. Um, at the time we, I think we had either AOL, but we had a, a reliable means to get online for the most part. And so I'm on the internet and I'm using, you know, the search engines of the day and I'm looking for like how to play D D online, you know? So two avenues came out of that, the, the bulletin board system. So you could go the BBS route, but then I found muds and I want to say I probably like mud hopped. For a good couple months. And then I don't know what stood out, but I found this one MUD called Black Mud. And it had all the core classes of probably what it was is because it was in the MUD family, there's all different types of MUDs, but Black MUD is a derivative of Daiku. And Daiku is like a hack slash modeled after DD 2.0. So it all the stuff I was learning, you know, on the tabletop pretty much translate it right over, but it had new races, different deities, but all the classes were the same. The abilities were pretty much the same.
0: It's like, this is awesome. Now I can play D&D anytime. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think that was the the great thing too. Uh, I think because when I first found MUDs, it was a logical progression from playing games like Zork and, mm-hmm. and all the, the visual games like that where everything was text input everything was and then i was like this is fine but i don't want to solve puzzles i want to i want to actually like play all the rpgs that i like playing i wanted to play wasteland i wanted to play fallout you know cuz that's that's always been my bread and butter but i was like i don't know how to find something like that and and i think it came up in and oddly enough in the same thing in a group of kids that I used to play D and D with. And the one came in and he was talking about, you know, how Ultima online is coming out. He's like, it's kind of cool. It's graphical, but it just, it doesn't have the feeling that it does when I'm, you know, I'm playing on this mud. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I guess it's, it's good to say, I don't know what a mud, what a mud is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when, when people say MUD, it's multi-user dimension or multi- multiple user dimension. Yeah, and it's either dimension or dungeon. Dungeon, so, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Um, and the way you would access it, well, the o- only way I knew how to access it was through Telnet back yep. then, um, which for anyone, you know, obviously there's, there's versions of Telnet in windows still even though it's not really telnet, it's all done over ip now but you would literally dial into some random computer yeah. <laughs> and then that's where the mug was hosted and it was so strange to that's exactly like that's how you did it and you sat there in your prompt and it was all text
1: yeah
0: and it wasn't uh-huh. a, yeah I, I don't remember any time where even people were using like you know like ascii art and stuff to for their like okay, yeah you like you log in you're like here it is and then after that it just goes to the prompt and you're like oh you're in a room there's a door I'm like okay cool <laughs> yeah maybe there's a guide there maybe there's not there
2: could be a goblin there you never know yep uh, they're still played over telnet some of them are over SSH. Uh, some of them are even on the, like the Onion Router, so you can access them anonymously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but predominantly, they're still Telnet, uh, so they're still just as un- unsecure as ever. Which makes it interesting hobby that I went into security, and I you know <laughs> help give guidance to companies on how to protect themselves. And here, I, I help you know now run a a game that is over an
0: insecure protocol <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's it's fitting <laughs> it is yeah, it's a good good pairing so when you got into it, it was it's been black mud the whole time like that's yeah. like after you did your your hopping around obviously because everyone tries to find their home
2: yeah i pretty much stayed there i would play some other different styles of muds, like uh if you heard of god wars yeah. So there was a stint where I would be into like PVP. So I would hop on some God Wars and play that because the, the feel was different and it was more, you know, direct. You train up like DBZ you know, and <laughs> build your power level and then go and trash some people, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but what? for the most part, yeah, it was all all Black Mud. And I guess some cool things with it was, I think around the time I was in college, we've had two different user conferences. So even for muds, you know, but to bring people together from like, we had one guy ride a, a Greyhound bus from Canada, to oh, wow. Richmond, Virginia <laughs> for a, a mud convention for the, that one
0: game. So that's, that's dedication. That is, yeah, that is, <laughs> that's pretty crazy actually. <laughs> Like uh, I, I know myself. Like I, I'd hopped around, and um, I basically I, I was looking around and went into uh, a slew of different things. Um, like it, I, I went the the fantasy, you know, the high fantasy route, and I was like, oh, you know, this this is okay, but I am a little. You know, it's like I I can do this with my friends. I didn't I didn't really want to to go that route. And I was like, well, maybe like let's let's try these different ways. Like, um, I was like, there's sci-fi ones. I was like, "Hmm, not really that happy about that either. I was like, it's too weird. And when I fell upon the one that was based off of wasteland, that desolation, like the reason why it stuck with me is because. It was that post-apocalyptic. I was like, okay. It was heavily like it was. There was a lot of like uh, player interaction, and there was PvP, but it wasn't the main part. It was like surviving was yeah. the main thing, and that was the the scariest thing. Like I, I was like, okay, at any moment I could get murdered because I'm out here in the desert, and no one can help me and i was like that's pretty terrifying (laughs) (laughs) so uh, i think that's why what kept me besides the setting that's what kept me in for so long it it was that constant feeling of like oh man it's right at the uh basically right at the the cusp of like oh i don't i don't know if i want to go exploring today i heard there was a lot of stuff i went on to like the message boards and like people are getting angry and antsy because this one faction is coming through and just ganking people i was like this is um this is this is my jam (laughs) and there's usually a level of risk involved
2: you know Mm -hmm. like if you die in in these games you know they're more hardcore and that you will lose experience uh you'll lose levels you can lose gear equipment you know so there's like you you play a wow you have to run back and respawn i don't know what right. modern
0: mmos are doing i haven't played one in a long time but most of them are very babying i, I i've stopped playing mmos oh for a while now but yeah it, it, it was the last time i did i was like oh i died oh what was the penalty for that oh there is none yeah <laughs>
2: I think what, what
0: my hook was, what kept
2: me playing, because the, the games like Muds, it wasn't actively developed. Like there would be some new changes, but it's all hobby driven. So an update might come out in three years or five years, or you know, not any type of regular cadence like a, a paid uh, software. And if there's a bug, it still needs just that person to have that time and gumption to want to fix it, to fix it. So a lot of times. Those would would persist, Uh, but I enjoyed like finding bugs, you know, so I I ended up taking uh, joy out of just like testing different spells and different scenarios or different skills and different environments. And then also with that, you could have a game client, a mud client. And the one I ended up using was called ZMUD, and it had its own proprietary scripting language. I didn't even know what a scripting language was at this point. It was just, I can write this, this code and have it do things. So if my character got hungry, I wouldn't need to type get meat bag and eat meat. Yeah. I can just have it automatically get the meat out of the bag and eat the meat. But the hook is like, as I would learn that language, that's how the initial one would start. But say I only had three pieces of meat in the bag and I get hungry again, on the fourth time, well, I'm gonna keep trying to get a meat out of that bag and keep trying to eat meat that I don't have. So I would make it a little bit more intelligent. I would make it so it can track how much meat is in the bag. And then as I consume it, it'll at least let me know, like, hey, you only got one meat left in that bag. You better go get some if you want to be able to keep eating. Uh, and so every couple years, you know, I would even if I like stepped away, I would get this idea or I'll I'd get this gumption to be like, well. How far can I take that that language, that C script, and
0: and do something else? Uh, that that was my hook to keep me going back. Yeah, that's a lot more intelligent way to approach a mud as well. <laughs> I <laughs> I had notebooks of me tracking everything because I instead of you know thinking, well, I have I'm on a computer, I could just have like even just like a word doc open and just kind of keep yeah. track of it nope yeah. I had like an old marble composition book that I would just be like all right my invent is what I have in my inventory right now and I would cross things off as I use them and I was like i found joy in it I don't know why but it's strange that I never got into i got into scripting but not through months like that's that's what was. I got a scripting out of nece- like necessity in web development. Okay, and that's how I started learning about all the different languages there <laughs> are, and that's when I um, started hating web development and interfacing with with programs. I was like, nope, this is this is not for me. But so you you get in into the to the mud realm, and you're you're learning these things and. As you as you're going through this, you know and you keep coming back to it like a, after high school and you go on to college um, what like did you still come back to like pick at it or
1: yeah, so
2: definitely mudded a lot while I was in college. Uh,
0: but it was also around
2: the time that I actually had a I built a computer and bought my first GPU you know was in the college days so i've always been a you know playing the not doom but what's the half-life two maybe I don't know. they were talking
0: 2002 2003 so yeah, quick three quick three yeah quick three came out in like 2000 i think yeah. and that that was like the the mainstay yeah on, so i would unreal tournament that's right yeah Uh,
2: So I would play those and then I would still go back to the mud because I could be in a classroom (laughs) if they weren't really blocking out, you know, telnet protocols or anything like that. So I could be doing classwork and still have a mud up (sighs) if I wanted to. Um, (laughs) The beauty of (laughs) muds. That's right. I think it was around that time that in the, the mud space, you probably know like there's the admin team and they, frequently are called immortals, like not always, but uh, it was common practice in the the D&D style ones that the admins are immortals and they're like deities so they can be worshipable by players and everything like that. Uh, So I shifted over to being an admin on Black MUD somewhere in the the 2002, 2003, Uh, mostly just for contributions I had on finding bugs, uh, like planning to fix them. Or building out like
0: content, uh, so like new areas or creatures and things like that. Yeah, I, I always, well, I always call it breaking the game. I, I always love finding bugs, but I would never. This this goes back forever, because um, I, I did a lot of game testing, but not a lot of remote stuff. It was weird, like back then, uh, companies like upstart game companies they would actually send out like cds basically mm-hmm. after floppy disks and what i had to do it's like they gave it was like a piece of the game and i had to play it break it see what i could do with it and then i have to email them like everything that i found mm-hmm. it was something that i learned that i liked doing but i never knew like how to actually pursue it other than the few connections that I had with these gaming companies, because I might've known somebody and, and like um, one of my favorite, I I still have a a credit on the game uprising from the early two thousands and uprising was interesting because I I barely remember the game, but it, it was a um, flagship title for heat.net which was a gaming sir online gaming service <laughs> kind of that you could dial into and i it was so strange but the game itself was was interesting because i remember that they kept pushing it but every time i would play it i'm like listen guys this this isn't going to work because i can i remember i kept breaking the game Uh, every corner like it was obviously put together by a small team that didn't know what they were doing (laughs) um and i i mean to no fault of their own uh, they had no internal quality uh, like there's no qa there yeah so so it was all the people that were beta testers for heat.net ended up being qa people and we all got on the credits, and there was more QA people than there was developers. <laughs> <laughs> it was like six developers, and then I think there was like a hundred of QA people. Wow! <laughs> and uh, the game tanked like instantly. It was—I I think the concept was to have like a almost like a first-person RTS type thing where you're like, oh, you're building bases, like people are creating an rts environment but it's all through a first person but it was so janky (laughs) because the technology just wasn't there yet yeah and um but yeah i when you said you know finding bugs i always love doing it and when i would find something i would always exploit it because why not especially if it was a bug that would benefit people yeah well i'll 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 use that it's there in the game they didn't fix it yet <laughs> i guess that
2: was the difference between us i would report them i'd be like <laughs> hey you know like as but as soon as i was comfortable with saying like here here's the way you can reproduce it so i would i would exploit it until i could nail down like
1: mm.
2: how to do it but then once I, I was pretty sure i knew how to do it then i would get in contact with someone and be like hey i want you check this out and Maybe you on your side, you could see what's really happening, but check out what I'm doing and what it does.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I would not do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what would happen is I would find a bug, um, be able to reproduce it, and then I would tell my friends, I'd be like, hey, <laughs> this is how you can use this to get this. And they're like, really? And, and, it, and it was sometimes... The bugs that I found were sometimes on accident, like, mm-hmm. and they were already known. But I would be like, Oh, I'll, I'll never forget, like, the original Diablo, the duping bug. I that was on accident. Like, I didn't look it up, I didn't do anything like that. I just remembered I had dropped something and I went and I was just clicking too fast. And just I the way you clicked it, yeah, yeah, because I did that one too. Yeah, it's like all of a sudden I threw something off my belt. And it became that item and i was like uh-oh yeah. and then that entire night for like six hours that i was just trying to recreate it and once i figured it out and got the timing down i was like this is bad this is so bad and easy to do yeah <laughs> but yeah uh, like i said i would take advantage of those things but that's just because i i didn't care <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was, yeah. <laughs> so I was
2: in college. I was doing uh, associate's in programming. And my hope I mean, one, I could get a job in programming because I thought the scripting was fun. I was uh, always good with computers. I could, by then, I was repairing high school computers. Like in the the high school, if one was broke, a teacher would be like, hey, Eric, can you look at this computer? It doesn't work. And I would probably fix it up or not fix it, but I'd at least try. Um, but I was either going to be like a welder because that was one of my Votex that I was taking in high school. Uh, I wasn't an academic student. Yeah, uh, I wasn't either. <laughs> <laughs> so welding was the, the trade I picked in, in high school. Uh, and they had a computer shop, but there was a, you know, me at the time, I was more like a, a punk skater kid. So... I took one look at the the welding shop and i saw the ventilation i was like i could smoke cigarettes in there (laughs) (laughs) and then i look in the computer shop and i'm like well that's just going to be stuff i I might know but it doesn't look fun it's just (laughs) yeah (laughs) the computers looked old they looked old to me
0: (laughs) yeah that that it's funny you mentioned that i remember like we were fortunate that in middle school well actually elementary school they had an apple too that they would cart around to the classrooms like okay today this classroom gets to use the apple and you can do and they had like three things one of them was Oregon Every it was always Oregon Trail was one of them Mm -hmm. but then it was like uh some typing thing and some math thing and I used to be fascinated by it, and that's why I always wanted a computer. But in middle school, we actually had a quote-unquote computer lab. There was like 12 computers in there, and they were crappy at best, um, but they were networked together, and it was very strange because... Even though they were, I don't know who ran it. Like obviously mm-hmm. you had a teacher in there and they taught you whatever. Or sometimes it would be a free type period, like a study hall. But whoever put it together didn't know what they were doing. And that's when like the group of friends that I was with knew what we were doing, and we found out we could get outside of Ooh. of the network very easy. And this was this would have been Windows 3.1 days yeah. of three, 3.11 because it was networked because that's when they added networking functionality to Windows. 10 base T network. Yeah. So we I remember we would get in there and get out, like get internet in middle school, which is never a good thing to have kids there. But, Doing that, we actually were able to download the Doom shareware and we put it on the network and we we're playing Doom. <laughs>
1: <That's>
0: <laughs> Which awesome. uh, those poor computers, I felt like they were just going to like it would chug unless you put it into a small viewport. So yeah. you-,
2: <laughs> you have a larger monitor, but you have a smaller like, yeah. resolution that you're.
0: 200 by 300, you know, it's, (laughs) but you know, it's, I I felt lucky because we always had computers and, but when we got to high school, I too was not a great academic. (laughs) Um, and my choices were art or the computer lab was also art, but it was digital art. Like we had a bunch of, uh, they were like Pentium twos. There was Pentium two just released, like two hundred or two thirty threes, and we had a, a room of twenty of them. It was really cool, and they had Corel Draw on it, and and Photoshop, but Photoshop looked horrible back then. And I, it actually started a weird like fire in me that I was like, this is the future of art. I just don't understand it like completely. So I, I went the traditional art route. It's the only reason why I graduated high school because <laughs> I took enough art courses to say, well, well, you, t- you have enough c- credits. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so Your GPA is high enough. Yeah. I was like. Well, if I didn't have all those art courses, I would definitely not be graduating. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um I just kind of find it funny is is you you have these these tangents that you end up seeing and you're like, yeah, I I don't think that's for me and you end up coming back around to them. Yeah. And I you know, for me it was I went to school, uh, to college for graphic design of all things. Um, and you know, it's, it's actually kind of parallel to you. You went to school for, (laughs) for what you thought was going to be your future of being maybe a game developer or going down the programming path and just like, Hey, look, this is going to be my future.
2: How's the idea?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just like i was like i'm gonna be a graphic designer it's i'm gonna have some crazy office in new york city or someplace and be an art director and do all these crazy things with my graphic design degree and um when was it that you figured out that no that's not what's happening at all with it
2: <laughs> uh, probably right around the time i graduated uh, <laughs> it didn't take long uh, i think it's because you know i looked at the job market and uh, a lot of the jobs were for creating, like, education software, you know, create, like, it was just various types of utilities, and a lot of them were looking for Java programmers, and out of all of the different courses and languages I took, Java was the one I hated the most. I still, you know,
0: just from that, I'm permanently scarred. I'm like,
2: oh, yeah, I don't like Java.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think... um even the people who created java don't like java i mean <laughs> no one likes java
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah I, I walked away
2: you know there I was you know a, an academic student so i you know good gpa i had no problem with the courses i was very into the material so whether it was databases or c web design you know any of that um, i was really into it uh, but when I graduated, I was just like, "Yeah, that's really cool, but that's not what I want to do. Uh, I don't want to just look at lines and lines of of text and troubleshoot it and figure it out and So I ended up going back home, so I'm from the the eastern shore of Virginia, which is kind of backwater. like you can work the water as a career, you can if you're fortunate, you can own some chicken houses if your family does. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like yeah. there's, uh, But there's a, a NASA base there and a part of it is a, a Navy contract site. So I got fortunate that they had a, a job role there that only required a high school diploma and it was a computer operator was the, the title. <laughs> um, tell me more about this computer operator. <laughs> so the Navy site was, or is, it's a training site for like battleships and cruisers. And they have all the radar equipment and everything that these cruisers and destroyers have for Aegis class ships. And so a computer operator would load up labs. They would, cause they're all like reconfigurable. So the premise was, is if it's out at sea, then we can set that site up or a room up to run the same operating system suite as that ship that's out to sea. So I would literally have a a shopping cart full of hard drives and caddies, like the the full hard drives, you know, Um, and I'd have probably 64 of them. So I'd go around and change out, you know, take out the old, put in the new, then fire up the equipment. That's for some of the newer stuff. But we had computers like tactical systems that went all the way back to They were probably like created in the late 60s and then produced in the 70s. So these things didn't talk IP. They didn't like the CPU would be (laughs) 25 pounds and would weigh, you know, like be a, a, and those module, you could sort them in and out and you use light bulbs and you would use flip switches and you use like binary or hex and you punch codes in and flip switches you felt like a mad scientist that yeah, sounds like it <laughs> <laughs> but it would somehow work but it exposed me to like it was a perfect tech ground of all the stuff you read in the textbooks and it of uh, the different types of networks like A lot of them aren't around today outside of probably exclusive sites, but like a FIDI network, a token ring, um, thick net, where you have that coax cable and you can actually have collisions of packets. Um, So I got to work on that stuff and I got to like take what I knew, but apply it there and piece those things together in a way that, you know, after about two years of being a computer operator, I shifted over to being. An associate technician. So that was a program local to that site where a, a real tech, not an associate tech, but a real tech, you had to come from the Navy. So they would hire folks that you know retired out of the Navy or maybe they got out after their eight, you know. But they had worked on those equipments hands on, and that was the skill set. But we had an initiative at the site, you know, if you wanted to cross train and go into that career path there then you could become an associate tech mm-hmm. and then you would work alongside those folks that were in the Navy and learn what they learned. So I got that job and I did that for about two and a half years and learned all about switching, um, physical switching, and then the type of switching that we use in computers today. So it was an experience. <laughs> um, but it was in that role I got to, to bring the mud in, not, not the mud in the sense of, like, the mud, but the client. So um, the scripting that I had learned how to do in the mud, there were some of the switches that you had to troubleshoot them. And I was one of the, the two people on the site. And the site ran 24-7, and it still does. So we would run labs, you know, that would, might start at midnight and it goes to 6 a.m., and you'd have to set these things up. And they're always being reconfigured for whatever it is, like they might need a certain radar. So you'd have to wire things up. And you did it from this master control system, MCS. It used to run on a VAX. So this is, it was running on a VAX at the time, so mainframe. <laughs> so a lot of the protocols were like Telnet, you know, how you would interface with these switches and you would be able to troubleshoot them over Telnet.
1: Hmm.
2: So I brought in my MUD client that I knew how to script in, that I knew could talk over Telnet, and I would make, I would make helpers so that other people that didn't have to know all of the ins and outs could have a you know a command that was really short and brief. You know, like uh, troubleshoot port would be the command, and then you'd put in like port one space port two, and you don't need to know all of the other stuff. And it's just going to go through and probably run like fifteen commands wow. on your behalf based on those two ports. That's going to tell you if it fixed
0: it or not that's uh, ingenious actually <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean you're using a tool that you already know how to use and you're just adapting it because you saw the like hey hey it, there's this, potential yeah. yeah it's like this it's kind of the same thing let's just shove it together real quick to see if it works hey it does cool <laughs> yeah it was mostly out of like
2: if the other guy that I worked with, Rich, was like on vacation or something, and I wasn't working because it normally kept us on different shifts, mm-hmm. you know, just to keep the, the help, the, like the backline help, available. But you'd get a call on Sunday at you know 3 a.m. and It's like, hey, we're trying to get this lab up. This thing's not working, and mm-hmm. uh, you, there is no remoting in. It's military base, so you have to drive on in, and then you, you know, that that was only cooled
0: so many times <laughs> you know uh, around after i i graduated with my wonderful graphic design degree i went to um uh work for aol actually and i was i i had um started there as a phone representative selling dial-up to piggyback off of your broadband it's like a special package they had and broadband was just becoming a thing so you could pay instead of like 25 dollars a month for aol you can get aol with broadband which is only like 15 dollars a month <laughs> it was just so you can access the aol portal it's so stupid and people wonder how a big titan like aol fell apart um But yeah. (laughs) But what was really funny is that is the job that I had gone kind of already been jaded by graphic design. It was an oversaturated market. I was living Mm -hmm. in Tampa at the time. It was like, okay, if you do find a job, it's going to be basically minimum wage doing getting coffee for people and doing the the grunt work and i was like whatever so i got this call center job because i didn't want to be in retail anymore cuz that was my part-time thing in college and maybe about a month into working there they had an opening in their it department and it was a 1500 seat call center so it was a lot of people mm-hmm. and i remember interviewing with them and i found out that the it department was actually uh an it manager who didn't know anything but the actual layout of the building like you could ask him where all every line of ethernet everything that whole building was and he'll walk you right to where it is and point to it wow that was like his his magic trick basically because if if we were pulling up anything on the network be like oh no like router 137 the, the switch 137 is down where's switch 137 he's like uh go down to the that row there two over up in the ceiling there's going to be a, a a pat i'm like <laughs> okay thanks thanks joe
1: yeah uh, just in his head right
0: yeah and, and that but about any of the inner workings and the software and anything that we did he had no clue but he was our manager uh and then neil who was the actual it guy and i i love him i'm still in contact with him to this day he needed somebody to do the dirty work to do the grunt work but it was fun grunt work um and then there was a, another guy chris who was um He was the telecom engineer. So he was in the office, but he was in his own world. He's like piecing together the IVR and doing all the crazy stuff that call centers are known for. So I got the job because I could run command line things. That was the only reason why I got the job. It's because I understood it and I had... a very minute like programming background just from necessity and they um the job was so strange because what it was was okay we need you to fix headsets for for the people reset passwords you know just basic help desk stuff but then There was like some other jobs that we had were like oh you know we need to run these uh these programs and this program and what happened was neil and i got bored because there was times when there would be downtime Mm -hmm. and we ended up starting to automate everything (laughs) (laughs) um that was actually our downfall is we got we made everything too efficient
1: <laughs> you have
2: to be careful with that. Yeah, yeah
0: um, and it wouldn't have been bad, but like he went on vacation because every year he would go for a month back to South Africa, and I would sit there and I would hold down the fort. And we had somebody from our corporate offices come in to like sit in to see our day to day. And he's like, "Wow, you can handle all this for yourself." I was like, "Yeah, but you know, we we made it so it's this way, so." in case one of us is sick or in case something goes wrong, a lot of it is automated now because we created these programs for this. And then they fired me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Citing that they didn't need two IT people. And then um, once new software came in, (laughs) which was funny because I already left the company because they weren't going to rehire me. Um, Neil was just like, yeah, we hired three people to replace you because no one knows the, the programs that we wrote and I don't have time to teach them. And I was like, oh, that's cool. He's like, yeah, it's great. I hate it so much because every time AOL would send us new uh, new test batches, we would have to update our, our software that we made that worked with it. So the reps could do stuff and report things and do all that. And then all of our server automation, all of our telephone um, recording uh, automation, everything that we put together and made from scratch. I was like, we made ourselves obsolete by working efficiently. (laughs) (laughs) But
2: you also had to keep, you had to maintain it, right? With new releases and stuff.
0: Yeah. But they, they didn't see that. They just saw that, oh, you're barely doing work. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, we we did a lot of work to get here. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, the IT world is something. It, it kind of opened my eyes to how everything is run on the back end,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and that's something a lot of people they, they didn't they never even think about it. Um, I, and that's something that always comes up first. Well, like how how is this running? I guess it goes back to me pulling apart a computer. Like how is this working? Like I, I see up front you're doing this but what's happening back here behind, sure. behind closed doors? Like, why, why is it happening and how is it happening? And then you open it up and you see like everything's on fire and you're like, no, see that's, that's a problem. That's going to be a problem in, in six months or a year. So- <laughs> and so that's a lot of like the same mentality
2: and approach I have. Of if I don't understand something and I see it as a challenge, then I want to figure out how it works. You know, how can I make it work? What's wrong with it? Um, so through work, like we would have times where we had to do like packet analysis, you know, so we're listening, we're tapping into the feeds, going across the wire, and then figuring out from there what's really taking place. We had one where I mentioned we had that master switch controller that was a VAX, Well, of the, the original writer of that Wanted like $2 million to like convert it over to like a different platform. Government didn't want to pay $2 million to transfer the over to something more modern. <laughs> so we had to reverse engineer a lot of it. Like they did hire a new contractor, but Rich and myself, we were paired to work with them and we would literally have to tap in and on from that master switch control, we'd run a command. We'd see what signals it would send out and then, once we had captured and we knew that we were sure what the codes meant you know, by seeing, like, oh, that disconnected it, okay? And then you'd run another one, and you're like, that connected it. We know what that signal looks like, so now the software developer of the new software would punch those codes in, so when you said, hey, I want to connect this HSDS port to this one, it sent that command that we called out as the the connect signal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it was working at that layer, you know, I guess taught me a foundation of, you know, you can go as deep as as you need to, or as you want to,
0: but if you figure out how it works, then you can usually achieve your goal. Yeah. I, that's, that's a very good sentiment, actually. Like that's uh, reverse engineering is, is a, a key component of that everyone should have. Like, and, I, and that's something I've noticed that some people don't have that ability to be like, all right, here's the finished product. Let's let's we take want. it back and see how they got there. And uh, that I, that was always very apparent in, in web development. And I would get people's websites. And back then it was a lot easier, obviously. It was just basically HTML, JavaScript, and, and CSS. And sometimes you'd have some PHP maybe, not a lot of people ran it, um, but as that became more prevalent, even that, you know, it, working with SQL databases and all that, you, you would have to, if you didn't want to sit down and read through books, you would have to reverse engineer. But like, well, okay, well, it's cool. It made this thing pop up on the screen and do this. How? And then you go into the code and you're like, oh, I, I know this, this little snippet. All right, so this little snippet is talking to this snippet and this snippets doing this. I'm like, oh yeah, now I understand. <laughs> and <laughs> I've I've run across a lot of people that just just like, I just want it to do that. Just make it do that. I'm like, well, yeah, you, you could do that. You just follow it back and then change what you need. Yep. Like, I don't want to do that. I just want you to make it do that. <laughs> yeah, you gotta have like a, a tinkerer. Kind of mindset where you're, yeah
2: you're open to, to finding what knobs you have inside of whatever it is you're working on and what happens when i turn it right what happens yeah. when i turn it left is there a limit to how far left it'll turn or does it just keep spinning
1: yeah
0: and then sometimes you turn it too far and you're like uh oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so h- how long did you did you work as a contractor for the navy like did you do that
2: uh, a little over 10 years it's almost like just as I was starting to get to the the 10 year like milestone the 10 year itch uh, i was pretty well established i was working in with the DOD Pauls information assurance which is their cybersecurity program so originally when i first started there there was no security like they didn't have a security program it wasn't a thing For cyber, anyway, they have physical security at the Wazoo. They didn't have cyber security. Yeah,
1: yeah, and
2: really important one, (laughs) right? So, at one point, we had the inspector general uh, for the government. They come by and they do an audit, and we failed miserably when they assessed our IT security controls. (laughs) And so that form, you know, they put the requirement on DoD saying, hey, you have to have an information assurance program and you need to have these things cleaned up by the time we come back around or we're going to shut you down. Uh, so that pretty much shunned my uh, my go-to into information security at that site. So probably the last six years, uh, like when they formed the information insurance workforce, you know, they... <clears throat> pretty much found the folks in IT that would be fitting for it. And then I was someone that was outside of IT. That was everything I was doing was right in that space. I was comfortable in command line. I knew what Linux was. We had, we had Unix and things like that, Solaris. And I was comfortable in those environments. for are like, well, we need a Linux person on the information assurance workforce. <laughs> so that was my foray into being what came with it was sand storage. So I became a sand storage administrator by inheritance, but the job I took because I wanted it was to be a Linux administrator. Hmm. So that was the last six years of working at mm-hmm. the, the
0: DoD there. That's, that's a, you know, even as a civilian contractor for the Navy, that's, that's a long time to be working with you know as a contractor because i, I have talked to other people there's like yeah I, I was a contractor for like four three or four years and then after that i just that's it and no more i just went you know to to the private sector and but you know 10 years is <laughs> it's a long time <laughs>
1: yeah that's yeah. a
0: haul that's a haul yeah. so when you got to nearing to the end of that 10 years did you have like a a a path that you saw, you're like, Oh, this InfoSec is, it, you know, that seems to be the way I want to go. It was.
2: Yeah. So by the time I was leaving, I was, uh, a Linux security administrator and all my job, my day job at that point, I liked innovating. I liked solving problems. I helped them save quite a bit of money and I would document it, you know, achieve success that way, but eventually there was more inspections by different agencies. So my job became nothing but preparing for the next audit. Uh, So I never, you know, I had things I would want to do to make my, I want to automate more, you know, I was big in automation as well. And so I'd always have plans to make my job easier to make the customer's experience a little bit more reliable or, you know, faster or better. But my ability to innovate just kind of went
0: out the window because it was just prepare for the next audit. Yeah, um, that's, that's kind of like the uh, the whole idea of like school is now yeah. just pre- preparing for the next test instead of learning. <laughs> so
2: that was what I was looking for when I was leaving, you know, the DoD. I was like, well, I want to find something where I have more of a, a canvas, you know, or a task and challenges where I can architect and design a plan. That's what I wanted to still be hands-on and technical, but to be in a position where I can, you know, use the skills that I had built up to this point and build a program and run it. Uh, Security was definitely a passion. I mean, from the days of being a script kitty, and then in the DOD, when the information assurance became a thing. So security kind of formalized, uh vulnerability management was a big thing that I was into for the DOD. So being able to identify vulnerable software or misconfigurations in operating systems, and then knowing like how to address prioritization, like how quickly do we need to move on this? What's the risk to this um, actually being exploited? So I like that and I wanted to carry that forward. So I ended up finding a a startup in south carolina and so i went from virginia to south carolina and it was the startup corporation and what drew me to it was one it was startup so i kind of knew that in a startup i think i was employee eight Mm. (laughs)
1: um
2: but it was the cause that also drew me and that was uh working in oncology so cancer okay and the goal was to make it so that clinical trials could be more accessible to smaller healthcare systems. Mm. So big pharma typically takes their clinical trials to healthcare systems that have a demographic of patients, or I should say to a hospital system that has a higher likelihood of having the demographic of patients of what they're looking for. Yeah.
1: Because
2: there's costs associated with creating those agreements and everything and the, the process for selecting patients or finding patients and selecting them. So our whole goal uh, as a nonprofit was to establish a a democratic-based system where we enroll in healthcare systems, they data share with us securely, we house all of their ePHI, and then we also broker and have the contracts with pharmaceutical companies, and we allow the smaller healthcare systems to be able to enroll in those clinical trial programs and have access to them. So instead of uh, a treatment that might only be available at the Cancer Centers of America or John Hopkins, you would now be able to access that same clinical trial with your physician or your oncologist in your local healthcare system. Hmm.
0: So yeah, that, that is, that's actually a, a, noble, it was a cool. noble cause. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I really liked
2: the, the idea. I liked the, the goal. Uh, and they were pretty early on. Like As an employee, they had like database administrators. They had uh, data engineers. So the term there is ETL. They extract, translate, and load. So they get the data from source health, healthcare systems. They translate it into shape to put it into our data warehouse. Wow. And then we would run our software on top. And so when I got there, it's like the DBAs were logging in as root for everything. Oh, yes. You know, (laughs) Uh, there was no type of encryption anywhere to be seen. They didn't have any EPHI at this point. They were still working like that early on that they were sending stuff up. They were doing mock-ups. And so I, from there had to kind of employ like a a security first, but we work it in at the base level and then it's not going to be so painful when you actually need to do it when you're working with the live data. Mm. And that helped us find like ways that we could automate the encryption process and ways that we could, uh, you know, have the the break the glass scenario. Like you don't need root for 95% of what it is you do. So we'll give you a means that you can elevate up when you need to, but otherwise your standard. And then of course, logging and all of that. But that was all the, the hands-on tech stuff I got to do. And the other side of it was I had to do like the policies and procedures and working with the the healthcare systems when they're like, well, what are your security controls? If we're going to give you all of this ePHI, you know, so
1: what do you do with that
2: data? How do you protect (laughs) that data? Uh, If we ask for reports, what can you provide us? Uh, So I had to
0: build that side of it as well. Wow, that's—I mean, especially because you're you're coming from you know, the ground up on this, so yep. that that had to have been a challenge. Like, you're like uh, um, I don't know, actually. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was. Because and the DoD
2: security is is like mandated, and thanks to NIST, uh, National Information Standard Technology. I might have it wrong but it good. It sounds good. It sounds official. <laughs> um, they, they set requirements or not really requirements, but they, they give you actual specifics, you know, like here's your requirements or here's your goals. Here's how you can hit that compliance level. Well, HIPAA, you know, and high tech, those are the regulatory guidances over healthcare. They tell you what you gotta do, mm. but they don't tell you how you have to do it. Yeah. and they don't tell you to what degree you have to do it so they might be like log things Mm -hmm. like all right well we can log stuff but what do we need to log? well log stuff yeah you know stuff the day you have an incident or a breach that you have to disclose then they'll review your controls and see if you were you know doing (laughs) the reasonable level of auditing that you could do Mm -hmm. um
0: uh, so you're yeah, only... HIPAA is a, a rough one too because I I used to work in insurance uh, for Blue Cross like uh, for a few years when I, I had moved back to New York and I learned all about HIPAA and like how deathly serious they are about HIPAA
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and I always question, I'm like, if you're so serious about it, why everything that we're doing is logged through an AS400 system. <laughs> I'm like, do you really, if, I mean. How secure is this thing? <laughs> like, that's what I was saying. I'm like, I'm like, we're not like on a really secure, I mean, you say it's a secure network, but it doesn't look that locked down. And like, I could check. I'll never forget being in, in the training class and, and checking to see like what kind of ports were open and just Mm -hmm. doing the things I do when I'm bored. And (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of stuff that's just wide open on this thing. And then when the first day they were like, okay, here's the system that you use to log in for all your medical claims and billing and everything. And I was like, it's an AS 400 system. I'm like, this is like, at the time was already like 15, 16 years old. And I was like, D- "Has this even been updated at all? Like, what is it updatable?" Yeah, like... I'm like, uh, <laughs> the only time I've ever used an AS400 system was inventory for when I was a manager at Staples, like 12 years prior. Yeah. And I was like, "That's why are you doing this all for medical records?"
2: <laughs> You'll be surprised where you find those. Like, there's mainframes, and like, there's they're still around. They they. Are relics of the past that,
0: that persist are running the world. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah, uh, But so you know, you, you got into into that, and this this whole time you're creating this. How did you even find time to to g- game? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, for the stint, I mean, it,
2: it changed over two and a half. The big thing I learned with the startup is. Change happens sometimes quickly, um, so I think I had five different bosses over the two and a half years. And stints without any boss, and but for the the good days, I would say I got to kind of pretty much set my own schedule. So I would come in early because I found you know the DBAs and the ETL folks they don't want you to to work on the, the infrastructure when they're trying to do work. And if you're working on infrastructure, you quite often have to take things down and bring them back up mm-hmm. <laughs> so i would work like 5 a.m and then cut out early and then that allowed me to have some afternoon time where i could play some games or uh, practice even hacking or whatever else just in hobby before the next day uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I had, I had a decent balance i was also a bachelor you know so it was it was easy. It was fun. Still got to go out and explore a new city and learn the area as I you know worked in that, that career. And by the end of it, part of what helped me manage it is I grew into management there. You know, still by the time I left, I think employee-wise in the 25, but with contractors probably in the the 40, 50. Mm. And I had you know the DBAs reported to me. So I had two DBAs. Uh I had two systems administrators and then myself. And that was doing more specifically just security. So I'd offloaded any type kind of system administration, storage administration. And I was really more of uh, oversight to the initiatives from that perspective. And then just making sure that the security controls that we were putting down from there forward just aligned to our policies and procedures and were something that could scale, because that was the big thing with that company was we were small and people but in data, we were massive because yeah. every time we would onboard a new healthcare system, the data set just kept growing and growing, becoming more and more data, and I'm like, ooh, this is a lot of data. Ooh, you know, like, <laughs> let's make sure we keep our controls tight. Um, and with the a lot of management changes around the last one, uh, the original mission and culture of the company just kept changing and getting further and further away from what it was in the beginning. So, that that was my main driver for going. You know, I had, this was a great opportunity. I, I definitely grew a whole lot. Uh, I still have a whole lot more growth in me, but I feel like if I if I stayed there longer, I was probably going to hurt my skills or hurt my growth hmm. because I would have been compromising my own kind of values.
1: Yeah.
0: So you come to an end there and. What opened up on the horizon for you?
2: So there were two local healthcare systems. There's
1: yeah.
2: at the time Greenville, I think it was yeah, GHS, Greenville healthcare system. And then I was working in Spartanburg, so Spartanburg regional. And I was took a job at Greenville healthcare system when the folks at Spartanburg figured out that I, the security department folks figured out that I was leaving where I was at, um, and we went out to lunch and I, I had a movie scene, uh, the whole, you know, write a number on a, a napkin and slide <laughs> it across the table. Like I, I literally had that moment at Willie Taco in Sparneberg, <laughs> South Carolina, where they're like, you know, we hear you're going to at the GHS, but what would it take for you to, to come over our way? So I put a number on a <laughs> napkin, I slid it over. <laughs> the two folks on the other side like that said so we can do this <laughs> <laughs> so i went to work for you know, spartanburg regional and i was a uh, uh, came in as a i don't know if i was senior or not but a security engineer um and i worked there for about two and a half years and over that um i think when i left i was a like the technical team lead so i led the the security engineering team there and i was brought in to work vulnerability management, because mm. I did it in the DoD, of course I did it in the, the startup that I worked, but it was quickly in like a, a type of uh, attack that is quite common is a, a BEC, a business email compromise. So <laughs> yeah, it happens in our daily lives, but it happens in corporations a whole lot. And I realized like we were performing an investigation because a, a BEC had happened. And I'm like, all right, well, let's go to your sim. So a, a sim is a security information event management. It basically that's the technology that collects the logs from everything and allows you to have analytical rules that allow you to either create alarms like, hey, this user is sending out way more email than they historically ever do. Something might be up. You might want to look at that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's what a SIM's about. So I was like, well, let's let's use the SIM, let's investigate that. And the manager was like, well, we can't, we don't trust our SIM.
1: I was like, what? Yeah,
2: it's like, <laughs> wait, so you, you want me to work on your, your vulnerability management program, but you have a SIM that you don't trust. I, I mean, I'm not here to tell you what I should be doing. I was like, but I, I can tell you it'd be more valuable if I helped you bring that SIM and made it trustworthy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I I took that on um, and I've always, you know, streaming data is the way to think of it, you know, logs in real time and collection, you know, just a mud, telnet, the work I had at the DOD with switches and the data and knowing what signaling was like and what it looked like, uh, it's very familiar, you know, being Linux, how do you troubleshoot Linux? But you look at logs, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I took that on and turned it around. Probably within eight or nine months, I got it so it was trustworthy again. And then within another eight or so months, I helped them close out audit findings. You know, so that's what you do in HIPAA is you have a third party come and tell you if you're meeting HIPAA. And again, it's their opinion because it's not really hard set. It's just like yeah. we think sure. that you, yeah, you you have sufficient monitoring now. So. I helped them close out an audit finding that had been open for a long, like eight years prior to me even getting there. You know, it's like collect all the logs from all the appropriate devices and make sure that you have a state of awareness for all of your, your biomedical and patient care related and business related uh, assets, which it was a multiple hospital healthcare system with hundreds of outreach buildings and ambulance care centers, like you name it. Yeah uh some companies even have like in office clinics that were staffed by us so it's like our it infrastructure might not even be there it might be that company's it stack and we just have nurses there using it but use our information systems from there so it was a lot (laughs) (laughs) you know through some planning and working like uh the other thing i found there was like in IT, and you probably experienced this, but IT teams don't always go along. Sometimes there's friction, and IT security teams definitely can have a, a reputation. Sometimes earned uh, being like an office of no or red tape or making things challenging. Yeah, and I'm like, that's not what we should be about. If anything, we should be in an enablement uh, office. So let me listen, let me hear you out, and let me find you know. Let's find the pathway to actually make this thing work that you agreed to and were cool with um, and that helped a whole lot you know mended some relationships with server teams to ambulance centers like we had an ambulance office that was like they had their own admins it admins and they had they're running their own stuff and it's like whoa
0: <laughs> yeah see
2: that's <laughs> it's like, well that's the way we've always done it I'm like that's cool but let's let's bring it in so that you know you have the same level of protections and safeguards and everything else and we'll make sure you still have your access and you can still do what it is that you like doing but let's just get some of the risk out of this
0: yeah uh, <laughs> it's like here's the thing uh, well i downloaded it from a site it's supposed to be like it tools i don't know <laughs> yeah, it's like healthcare juarez i don't know yeah. what that's about
2: they, they say they have this good ephi software <laughs>
0: you know i i i kind of and i see the the thread that weaves through all this and it all goes back to muds and <laughs> it does yeah i and through this whole time were you still you know always having a, a foot in that world or was it something that like you would put your foot in and take it out for a, a year or two and then hop back in and then
2: yeah i would say I almost always had, like, a maybe a pinky
0: toe in. <laughs>
2: um, so on the admin side, like, I would only ever play or do anything in the mud if I came up with an idea. You know, like, oh, I want to... Like, one of the, the last one I, I did was... Because I was an admin, so I had an Immortal in the game that basically means I can see anything, I can load anything, I can do anything, but I wanted to to map the game. So... Oh. So the clients now, they have mappers in them. So as you walk and explore through it, it creates little squares and creates the connections between them. Well, I didn't want to do it that way. I wanted to map every single room in the game. So I found the hooks into it in their docs, which mostly worked. So I scripted (laughs) where basically a program inside the client that would go like room by room and create... The square and then create the links, and I would just be able to, to hit go and it would map out a zone. And then I would cool, I got that zone, and then do it for the next one, and then I'd splice them together manually. Uh, but it allowed me to, to create what I initially did. Like I was similar to you way back when of using a notebook, but I'd use graph paper.
1: Oh, I would,
2: yeah. I would map with graph paper and I would use colored pencils and be like, here's a water room,
0: there's a road. That's that's what I would do um, with uh, EverQuest before mm-hmm. because they didn't you didn't have maps, which yep. seem insane to by these standards. Like today, there was no maps. You just had to learn the zones, and the yeah. best way to learn it was to run around and like jot down. And I was like, okay, here's the outline of the zone, and there's a river that goes through here, and like, oh, there's trees right here, and you're like,
2: because <laughs> if you don't, you will legit get lost.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that that was a, a big problem, especially uh, on corpse runs because that was a thing where yep. you died and all your stuff was out in the middle of a forest somewhere. Yep. <laughs> uh,
2: but from a, the pinky toe side, so a lot of the the like owners and the the core developers of the mud through life, you know, were off doing life things. Um, it's funny, one of the, the main owners of it worked in the DoD contracting too, but he worked on the, like for a competitor than the one that I worked for
1: <laughs> Now at my
2: site, we worked together like that company and my company, which is Northrop Grumman, that was his side. And then I worked for Lockheed Martin. Uh, so he always called me the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for a long stint, you know, a lot of the, the admin team just wasn't around. So me and a, another admin, or a couple of them, really, we just kept eyes on it. You know, so if the server crashed. We would be, we would catch wind of it within a day or two, and we would know the people to contact. And be like, you know, hey Fred, can you, you know, check the box and bring it back up? And sure enough, bring it back online. And so it would be good for another, you know, year and a half um, <laughs> until something would happen. Uh, so did that. For, for many many years, just helping keep the lights on. If players did have a problem, do what we could uh, to resolve it. But for the most part, it's a it's one of those things. It's a free to play. Uh,
0: so I, I got to ask this just because I know like Desolation back uh, like seven eight years ago when I played, still had maybe about ten players that mm-hmm. were you know pretty active. A uh, black mud, like uh, population-wise, like um, active users or semi-active users, how many are still wandering well, around?
2: I'll log in right now and take a look. <laughs> <laughs> Let's
0: see. It's because I, you know, it's and it's it's even before I I, I knew you, I've seen the name pop up before in like my searching like oh like what else is out there um but i never i think i dipped my toes in once maybe around a little after wow time because you had mentioned it yeah and and then i never went back but you know it's one of those things where I'm always on a computer. I have a side monitor. Why (laughs) not just uh, maybe I just put it up on the side there. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So look at now we have seven players online, but I would say probably only one might be like active. There's always people idling or uh, we we do some limited botting like you can forage in the games. We'll let people forage bot and stuff like that. You can't (laughs) advance levels and stuff while away.
0: Yeah. But still, yeah, and seven, even if they're idle, it's they're connected. In my mind, that it blows my mind that people are out there still doing it. But it's if anyone wants like a the essence of an RPG, like the actual what is the heart of any RPG, even from anything from you know, playing. And it's open world is the other thing. Like,
2: you know, you look at the game design and even in the RPG, like a lot of the RPGs that came out, whether you're talking the Chrono Trigger, you know, like that's a, a story-driven RPG that has a very set narrative,
1: mm-hmm. has
2: some cool mechanics and systems, you know, for sure, the music score out of this world. But in a mud, it's it's an RPG, but it's open. Yeah. You wanna go and fight or try to fight the an end baddie, like a an end boss that you can get to. You can try as a level one and you're you're gonna probably
0: perish. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's uh that's something that a lot of people actually need to experience. And that's I'm kind of happy that the direction that uh, Elden Ring took as mm-hmm. being an open world game and you can accidentally wander into boss fights that you just should not be, yeah. be it's like the the um, it's the opposite side of uh, your exploration risk it's like you, you explore this great world without knowing that the danger of exploring this area is increasing until mm-hmm. you walk into something that you're like oh this is a bad time but you could also be wandering around there and find something really cool. Yeah,
2: the standout, you know, from Dark Souls or you know, from software non-open world game is you almost expect a difficulty to progress. Yeah, you know, it's always kind of upping the bar a little bit or mm-hmm. throwing a curveball at you. But when the with Elden Ring, it's more like, oh, there's a a crab. All right, I'm going to be extra cautious because I don't know if it actually is just a crab. You know, yeah. like is yeah. that just the head of something that's going to pop up out
0: of the ground once I get
2: closer? It could be. You're like,
0: yeah, and then a dragon comes out from behind you because you yeah. disturbed. Exactly. <laughs> <area>. <laughs> yeah, I um, I, I've I have to admit, like that's that's uh, probably my game of the last decade just because it made me happy as an rpg player Mm -hmm. to have a world to explore that wasn't cut and paste that's that's always been the hardest thing it's everyone's like oh it's so great like everyone loved skyrim when it came out and it was great until you started realizing what was happening you're like it's the same 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 thing it's the same thing i go into a new cave well it's It's, the same same, thing yeah and it's like it's what's it's like what's the gimmick here oh there isn't it's the same thing and it's like all right well I'm gonna go into this little town and it's like okay this little town that isn't a big city is the same little town because it's the same two buildings or four buildings and I was like you start seeing the patterns and then you know I'm a couple hundred hours into Elden Ring now and I'm like the pattern I found is when you find a dungeon that you know that you're going to have to do something in the dungeon but it's not going to be the same thing there's been dungeons where I'm like oh yeah this looks just like oh crap like what- <laughs> what's okay so there's a hidden wall and then you have to go down a ladder and it w- only going down that ladder changes the layout of the dungeon I'm like what the hell is this crap this isn't even a main dungeon <laughs> but it's giving you that sense of all right
1: this they is actually unique-
0: Yeah, they actually cared about everything in this game. They didn't just go, all right, we need uh we need more area, so let's copy, paste, change the the skin. It's like it's a fully fledged living world. And that's that's what always attracted me to, to MUDs because it was that there wasn't just like oh this. I found a cave. What's in this cave? It's oh, it's the same as every cave.
2: Every cave is pretty much going to be different. Yeah, you you might be similar descriptions in that cave system you're in, but if you go to a completely different cave in a different area, it probably was written by somebody else entirely, or they did a completely different style or theme to
1: it.
0: Yeah, Uh, that's and that's what always intrigued me. Like, and you would get so used to that feeling that when you did go away from it It, it's it's hard to find that in in games of today that's why i I always tell people that they should go find a mud and just try it yeah just try it out i mean there's even clients on phones now that you can you can hop in there which would be great if i didn't fat finger everything on the keypad (laughs) but you know (laughs) but still it's some people do it. Yeah. yeah, It's, it's a beautiful place, um, which kind of brings me to, to this question here. It says, where do you see yourself going with all these skills that you've built up on, on both sides, really, um, on the professional side and on this, on the mud side here, like, where do you see yourself going in in the next five, 10 years with this?
2: So, professional side I've done a lot of development in the past so I've done like some open source work related to like creating a PowerShell module Uh, so I guess fast forward from that healthcare system that sim that I worked on I ended up going to work for the vendor that produced that software (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but while I was at that healthcare system back to that business email compromise, they had o- this open source uh, technology, this PowerShell script really, but it was a phishing intelligence engine. So it could analyze an email. It could like parse it out and then tell you some different things about it. Well, I took to that to help me with that whole problem mm. that we had, because that was where a lot of our problems came from, was from phishing. And then uh, once I shifted over to working for this company, uh, logarithm. I took over that project, and then I released new versions of it. And then I created a PowerShell module for working with our technologies, REST APIs. So it made it easier to to get data or to do stuff with our our SIM from a programming language using PowerShell. And that is the weirdest thing, because it was working for that hospital system that brought me into where Linux wasn't the main system for me anymore. It was a predominantly Windows environment which was fine. I was always a Windows Power Admin at home. I understood Active Directory. I knew all of the services and stuff and what they did. But getting things done, I learned I needed to be able to do things command line on Windows, and that's what led me to PowerShell. And while I had done Bash before, I had done Python scripts before, I don't know why, but I really took to PowerShell. So I have created some pretty complex Pieces of work in PowerShell that can automate some pretty complex things for people. Um, like, I've, I've made one piece that now, like, the, a, a customer of ours in Australia found this thing I was making for one of my, my customers I was supporting. And he just started running it and he started pinging me on Slack. Like, there's no documentation or anything for this, but it, <laughs> it, it bas- it's like think of a, a SQL database that's distributed. So you got like five of these, but they're all in sync with each other. And so it does a controlled rolling restart of them, like in stages. So and it can take days for it to do it. Now, if you were to do it manually, it might take you longer than a week, you know, but through doing it through scripting, uh, using PowerShell on Linux, so Microsoft scripting language, but running it natively on Linux, which is foreign to some folks now, um, but totally possible, thanks to PowerShell Core. Uh, but... This thing I made for a customer, you know, out of the United States over many months, was somehow now being ran out of one of our partners in Australia, and I'm just like, "All right, um, I, I now have created like pieces of work that are just being used." The like you mentioned uh, earlier before we kind of started recording on the podcast, and the amount of people you have that just happen to hit it week by week. When I look at the stats on that powershell module i created and it's like anywhere from 15 unique visitors a day um sometimes spiking up you know like it might hit 50 in a day and i'm like wow this thing is a resource that people are accessing people are using it uh we've now had contributors from other people around the world that have like found problems or added new things and we bring it into the project i'm like that's really cool Uh,
0: that is really cool i mean because that's uh, there's you get a sense of pride on that because <laughs> you're like hey that's my thing i did that yeah and
2: it's, it's not a part of like my job description it's not a part of like my day-to-day there was yeah. nowhere a requirement it's just i saw a need um i co-authored that so with a customer uh, that wasn't one of the people i supported just a customer that he saw the need to so we combined efforts and we created that piece of work and now it kind of lives a life of its own.
0: That's actually that's really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because not not anyone not everyone can say something like that. like oh yeah you know this thing that I had that was helping it was like uh, helping solve a problem is now a resource like, to help uh, many people with the a, a similar problem. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, so your question is like going forward professionally i I got burnt out pretty hard um I, I, or I tend to um I always I can't let go of a, a challenge if it gets to me if it intrigues me uh so the rate that just you know happening I never had the downtime like when I worked DOD, it was the same style but usually there was the ebb and flow like I yeah. would go pretty hardcore onto a project or task of reverse engineering project. Uh, But then I'd have some downtime or idle time where, Oh, we're preparing for an audit or we're uh, doing some maintenance on some systems. It's like the rudimentary work. It's work you got to do, but it's almost just like busy work. I'm like, all right, I don't have to critically think a whole lot to keep doing this. But so now I'm shifting over into doing management full time. So I've always been in that hybrid, uh, a doer and a manager. Yeah. Um, so now I'm shifting to to focus in on managing, leading teams, building a program out, uh, and going that for a career route. So less technical, less hands-on. Still going to be an advisor as long as I have the the competency to advise. But doing hands-on the keyboard, provisioning storage, or you know, helping assess. How to architect and design an expansion for an environment? Uh, I'll leave that to, to other folks yeah. for
1: now.
0: Well, I I think sometimes that's that's a it's kind of a good thing because it, it's going to free your mind up a little. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> that's I, I know how crazy it can get it when you have all these things in front of you, plus management, and you're just like, oh boy. Yeah, this, this is becoming this is becoming a bit much. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so then, on the the non work side, uh, on the mud, so COVID brought about some renewed interest from the the admin team for Black Mud. So like the original, you know, creators, they became more active again and really just wanted to to go back into that outlet. They kind of, I guess, identified like, hey, this has been a thing that. I'm passionate about, I, you know, created this, it's a custom world. He's like, I want to go back and work on this. Um, so those of us that were still around and even brought back in some folks that previously were, you know, active that we renewed, we started actually having developer per like syncs and saying like, here we are today. Where do we want to be in a, you know, a month? Where do we want to be in a year? And what do we want to do, um, to mature our, our, Game and our player base, um, so it was in there probably late last year. You know, so this whole time I could always work on creating like creatures or areas, but I couldn't do anything with the code. Not that I knew C outside of that one course I had in my <laughs> associate's degree program. I never touched C after then. And this mud base, you know, the codes we've been online since '93, so the code base is. A derivative off of i think silly mud which is one offshoot off of daiku there's a whole family tree you can bring up the daiku family tree but we're pretty old so it's straight c um so i got access and the ability to kind of program for black mud late last year and i just like all right i can figure this out i did c in college like and i multi multilingual enough you know i can read html php powershell like i've deciphered malware and php or powershell a little bit in python so i mean if i can reverse engineer someone who wrote code specifically to be hard to read then c is just another
0: one of those examples (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, it's I haven't I haven't looked at C probably since the nineties. <laughs> yeah. It hasn't really changed.
2: <laughs> I can't, I can't the imagine. Compilers that. have and yeah. the the IDEs, the development environments are so great now. Like they're they're probably what allow me to do what I do is they they tell you all the mistakes you make pretty much as you write them. So you don't always have to just go to compile it. They'll be like, hey, you have a, a variable you created that you're not even using. So you might want to either use it or get rid of it. Oh, thanks. Thanks
0: for letting me know that. Yeah, I kind of I kind of love the world now when it comes to these environments because people have asked me over and over again, you're like, Okay, you've been in you know graphic design. I I've been photo editing and manipulating for over 20 years. And now people are just like, Oh, you could just do it with an app. I'm like, Yeah, that's great. Let more people do stuff. With apps, Mm. I'm going to do it better, but I like that it's more accessible to people because there's been plenty of times where I've come across somebody that had no idea how to do something, but an app kind of held their hand through it and they've Mm -hmm. made something that's better because it was in their head, their idea in their head. And programming is a big one because a lot of the different environments are basically auto-correcting. Even on web development, I hate web development. Yes, a lot of places are now like, um, what's it? It's kind of like, uh, what you see is what you get. You just drag, drop, put yeah. it in there. And but it builds you, the code for you. Yeah, but if you go into Dreamweaver and you're like are doing that, and you're just like, why is uh, something weird? And you look at the code, and you're like, oh, what's the red squiggle? <laughs> you you <laughs> right-click it, it's just like, oh, this this variable's wrong. This uh, if I change, it's like oh, if you change it to this, it's going to do this. If you change it to this, it's going to do that. You're like, I understand now. And yeah. then you, you can start like writing your little bits of of, of code and whatever language that you're going to be writing, and it's going to be like, stop. You almost had it. It should be this, and the fact that it does that on the fly now instead of like, okay, I've done it, I've published it, and it's not working on all the browsers, and, um, <laughs> and I don't know why, and then you're reaching out, and you're just like, I don't and weeks go by and you can't figure it out. Now it's it's fixed almost instantaneously. And it's so much better for, for everyone to have these types of environments because um, it, it makes everyone's life easier. Mm. And it lets creation happen. I think that's the most important part is you get to create without having to worry about like, Oh, I I screwed up or like, I, I, it's running slower than it should. Or Mm -hmm. there's some, there's something in here that is, is tripping up this system. Like that's why I hated web development because I, nobody used internet Explorer rest in peace. Um, (laughs) But I, you always had to make sure that you had a, variable of the site that would run on internet explorer because of the small share of people on internet explorer mostly it was companies whenever companies would be like uh yeah the site that you built for our it would be like an intranet site that people can vpn into Mm -hmm. and if they're at home on safari or, or chrome or firefox sure it loads fine but everyone in their work site on internet explorer because that's all they had um it would not nothing would load properly and i'd be like great
2: (laughs) uh, backpatch some compatibility
0: yeah yeah (laughs) but i i'm i'm with you on the fact that the the environments are it's it's so different now and it's it's beautiful and i i implore everyone like if now's the time to learn Oh yeah. Between it's, between YouTube. It's and- free. That's what I was like yeah. the
2: resources, like you can use a Raspberry Pi. Like my dev server is a free tier Google Cloud platform compute node. And so it has like two threads, you know, like that probably isn't even one actual core. And they say they give you one gig of of RAM, but in the system, I got about 800 and some change megabytes of RAM. And I run the database, and I compile, debug, and
0: run the game. See? That's, yeah. Yeah, and um, for anyone out there wanting to learn any type of programming, and they they don't know where to start, just do something simple like, uh, was it notepad was it? notepad plus plus is fantastic because it's any language that you want to try to write in you can open up a tab and it and be like okay this is my this is my c this is my c plus plus this is my php and you can just yeah open it up in there take a look try to write it out it will help you it's like
2: and there's so many like there's alternatives for specific for Mac or like the Windows Visual Studio Code and you can run that on any OS now. So there's so many good free tools that you can use that it's it's amazing. Uh, I went from you know so started like November of last year Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. figuring out like trying to understand all these like I think it's 70 some files or something, you know, the C files that has a breakdown of from the protocol telnet to I run a command in the game and I've just started small doing modifications. And now it's, it's growing. I don't want to say out of control. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a method to the madness. I'm, I'm a person that like, I have a vision and if I, if the vision's clear, then I can make it to my goal. Like I can build everything and it'll line up in such a way that the systems will work somehow. Yeah. Um, and I have a whiteboard over here, like I actually do planning and sometimes I'll write things out. Um, but a lot of it is on the fly, but it's been interesting where like our mud, like telnet's old school, like it is a protocol, but in muds, like we didn't implement all of the telnet, uh, protocol handlers that we could have that mud clients of today can use. So like one of them is like telnet EOR, so end of record. It's a, and it was from the days of a terminal, but it's a way that the server can respond and say, "Hey, I'm done sending you data, so you can go ahead." Uh, so I implemented that in our our code base, and now like the prompt is snappy. It's like the game feels faster because as soon as it's done sending you data, the client knows it's like, "Oh, you're done." I'm going to display on screen. So here it is, you know you know, either 2021 or 2022 writing code, like it's 1993 to implement RFCs that were defined in like 1989
0: or 1986. <sighs> um, <laughs> but it's still useful and it, it works. So it's good. Let's see, that's That's awesome. And it, it, you're, you're making something that's been around forever a little better every day. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Yeah, my, my core goal is so the the game has been based off of D&D 2.0. And sorry if you hear one of my dogs is
1: <laughs>
2: taking her bed. Yeah. Let her, let her scratch.
0: Yeah, that's... I know all about that. See? Uh, both, oh, both of my pugs are upstairs, but the, the one makes her bed so slow motion-like and methodically, like the scratch is like... Sh- and she, like, stares for a second. She's like, I don't know if I did that right. Let me do it again. And then the other one does it angrily, like a burrowing gopher, just oh. fast, like, as fast as she possibly can, and then she'll, you know, basically splay out and just like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> That's funny.
2: So, yeah, the, the game engine, like, it was just from the era, is based a, a lot on d 2 So Thacko... Uh, like in that system, your strengths at 18 would go into a sub between zero and 100 and then go to 19. Just things like that. that yeah. More modern DD, like a the D20 system. Hmm. So, I'm overhauling like the code base to make it more D20 and also bringing in some of like either the DD 3.5 or Pathfinder type of rule set and spells yeah. and. Means for balance into the game, so it's uh, been
0: overhauled. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a big undertaking. <laughs> yeah. but that that's awesome because, like I said, it's you're evolving something that people yeah, people. Well, first of all, people need to get on if they want to experience it. That that I mean, that's like I said, it, it is the essence of any RPG, and the the fact that there's still love and care going into them, like like there is. Is is it's a beautiful thing. Now, but before we kind of like wrap up, I I was invited to your other Discord server,
2: DevCon <laughs> um, uh, Yeah,
0: yes. So explain explain that to me. Like, what? Well, how did how did this uh, little hacking community come together? <laughs>
2: Yeah, so DEFCON 864 is the, the brainchild of, of myself. And um, so he was a guy that I had met at a, a B-Sides conference. So B-Sides is, well, rewind. So in Las Vegas, there's a hacking conference DEFCON. Yes. Held once a year. Well, the story goes that for talks that ended up not making it as a DEFCON talk, some folks decided to basically meet at a, a nearby bar and have a, a side presentation. So, but B sides ties to like a music note, it's a music term. Yeah. But it, in our community, it was the, the side conference and it grew into being its own conference system. So you can have a B sides in your region, a B sides Augusta, B sides Greenville. Uh, so we had a B sides Greenville conference, which was our first security conference here. And it was at the, the after-dinner party at a, a wing place that's no longer there. And uh, just talking about this guy, Ben, he wanted to, to earn his OSCP. So that's an Offensive Security Certified Practitioner. It's like you're hacking 101, surf, but it's an actual lab. Like you actually have to hack systems and compromise them to get the root keys and write up a report in order to obtain the certification. So it's not like an ABCD type of affair. Yeah. So we we formed a study group and that's what we did after that conference. And as we were doing it, we were like, you know, there's probably more people like us. There's probably more people that either want to obtain this or are interested in doing this. And while neither one of us obtained our OSCPs, <laughs> 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 we did successfully create CON 864. So it's, a, you know, it's a, a group for anyone interested in Hardware hacking, software hacking, ethical hacking, none of the, the malicious stuff. White hat but,
0: stuff, well, Not, no, no black hat stuff. That's right. <laughs> um, we have some,
2: some interesting gray hats.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, and whether you're, we have professional pen testers part of the group. Uh, we're in an interesting area because we're Greenville, South Carolina, it's like north of Atlanta. So you like take mm-hmm. 85 and get to here. From Charlotte, North Carolina, you can 85 south and hit here. So we're like the in-between between those two major cities. And then we have Asheville, North Carolina, straight north of us, and Columbia, south of us. And we draw people from those four cities. And some of them attended in person. Others join in remotely. But our our core of you know, members of folks joining in and contributing or just learning and sharing are based out of this area but I'm just, I continue to be surprised by folks that find us from nearby cities and stay active and engaged even when they're,
0: you know, two, two and a half hours away or three hours away. Uh, well, And that's, I think that's the beauty. I, I mean, I, I've been on Discord forever now, but that's the beauty of, of a Discord server now is it, it makes it so it's, it takes all the, the guesswork out of having a community. It's... Mm-hmm. Because everyone knows it's been on the internet for as long as we have. Um, a community used to be like, all right, so let's get up a, a bulletin board of some sort and we'll have posts on there. And it's really annoying. And that the, the, there's always issues with it. If you're using like UBB or whatever bulletin board system, and it would just be like a headache. Yeah. Uh, and then your host would, would crash because if you did have a, a, a popular message board and, yeah, which just overwhelm. or someone
2: <laughs> someone chooses to DOS you.
0: Yeah. Or... Yeah. There's. There's. I mean, Discord's not impervious to people messing up your stuff, but it's made getting people together so much easier. Okay. Um, you know, they it, it took all the good things about having those message boards and also having it like a Ventrilo server or a team speak server and combining it into one thing and you're like this is this is perfect we can organize we can and, you know now with their streaming uh, capabilities you can have conferences on your discord server it's like it it's truly it's made uh living in the, in this age so much easier oh yeah <laughs> but you know it kind of makes me me laugh with um the the fact that you said that people are still coming in and and wanting you know to learn or even just to even casually observing it and Mm -hmm. seeing like the questions because you end up doing your own research if somebody posts something or uh, asks a question you're like oh i I never thought of that before let me look let me look it up like and it helps not just the community grow, but it helps people learn. Like, and it's, it's a, it's actually, it's a beautiful thing that you put together because it's something that I know there are tons of people out there. Um, And, uh, you know, it makes me like, uh, makes me laugh. Uh, You know, uh, what was his name? And wow, Barney, but his name. Uh, Warlogy. Yeah. Yeah. He, his path was, it's kind of similar but not really. He he did a the weird path of he was in the Navy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then from the Navy he went NSA and then private. He last I remember he was working in Publics as they're doing like uh, all their network security and I I know for a fact that he if there was like a community like that when he was going through I remember when he was doing all of his tests and, and doing like he needed to do like network penetration and all that stuff. I was like, I have no, I don't know how to help you, nor do I know where to point you without, yeah. you know, compromising your computer. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I synced up with him periodically over the years. Uh, so
2: he did go into signaling in the Navy and I remember he went with the NSA, but I think that's
0: probably the last time that I had talked to him was around then. Yeah. I, I still give him I give him shit for that because I was one of his references for the NSA and to not just for that and for his top secret clearance. Yeah. So I got put on a list and then two years later he was out of the NSA into the private sector. <laughs> and I'm like <laughs> I'm like, so when do I come off the list? He's like, oh, you did not until you're 65. Like, yeah, it's, it's a life, it's like life, lifetime. And I'm like, oh, cool, yep. thanks. Coming back into the country is very annoying. Like, if I ever fly out of the U.S., when I come back, I, uh, I get detained.
2: So I had the same
0: problem. <laughs> uh, there is a process. I'll send you some links, but there's a process that you can the, request department of homeland security trips process i've i've after like the fifth time it happened yeah. the uh of all the places the canadian at the canadian border was the one that they uh they're like you should just do this here's here's the website as i was like handcuffed to a bench i'm like
2: <sighs> yeah. yeah it takes a while and at the end of it you'll likely get a piece of or yeah i got a letter, but yeah, it was- basically said that we can't confirm nor deny if you were on any such list but just in case when you do fly here's a number for you to put in with yep. your information
0: yeah so. yeah I, I I love that thing it, it's and it, it is very it's very cut and dry it's just like ambiguous no, We're yeah. we no we're not targeting you it just happens to be every time that you leave the country and come back <laughs> we <laughs>
2: <laughs> my wife is going to be happy when she hears this that someone else had the same, you know, like I'm on the list. And we always guess like why I'm on the list. I'm like, oh, it's because I was in the TOT and I was yeah,
0: you know,
2: I had TS for a while and, you know, I hit the right box to get on a, a certain list.
0: Yeah, uh, between him and my buddy Vito, who was DOD in Japan, and mm-hmm. it was the same thing when he had to go get his clearance. He used me as a reference and when they're like, "Oh yeah, this guy's a good reference. He already referenced somebody else, so let's <laughs> just... <laughs> I'm like great." Yeah. But what was funny is the the call that I got for him was like fifteen minutes, but mm-hmm. the one for Barney was like a three hour interrogation. And Usually I, it, they would come and see you in person. Yeah, and I was wondering why they didn't.
1: Like mm-hmm.
0: it was strange, uh, but it was like one of those things where we're like, oh, well, you know, they gave all their information. And they, they asked me questions about me, about my history. And I was just like, okay, well, obviously this isn't like some scammer. This is like, <laughs> they know things that uh, I don't disclose <laughs> to <Yeah>. people. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is interesting. But, you know, it, I even, I, I said it too. I was just like, all right, well, this is this is what he wants to do. You know, that's fine. Go for it. Um, But yeah, he, he said, you know, there's more money in the private sector. That's why he got out of NSA. (laughs) Yeah. But on the, the DEF CON
2: group, it's been so awesome. Uh, Like I'm, I'm a forever student. Like I'm always going to be learning. I've had many mentors, whether formal or informal. And through this group, it's just an outlet that, you know, the little bit of info that I know and can share. It's a a means that I can have that relationship with folks, but they can also build their own relationships with each other. People that are learning the same things that they're wanting to learn or find someone that has that career um, or learn about, you know, the possibility of a a career that they never knew existed just through a conversation and in that type of setting. So it's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, it really is. Um, You know, before, before we go, is there any thing you want to plug put out there, people to join Black mud? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if you're in the, the market for a mud,
2: um, you know black mud's pretty cool. There's gonna be some cool stuff coming out probably early next year uh, if If my steam stays in the tank and it can stay focused, uh, one of them you'll probably like I'm planning to incorporate. I, I like merging old technology and new technology. It's one of my my passion and my sub passion. <laughs> uh, so, I'm going to have a, an arena system in the game so players can do like kind of wow style matchups, mm-hmm. but there's going to be an announcer in the game. But as that announcer kind of announces and says who's about who, maybe some highlights as the fight's happening and then who the victor is is going to stream directly into a
0: Discord channel on our BlackMud server. That's pretty awesome. I, I really I, I, I want to see that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'll make sure I, I show you. Uh, so there is a BlackMud Discord server, but Uh So if you're interested in checking out that technology, uh, feel free to hop on. You can do it. Telnet. So if you look for a client, Mudlet is the way I would say to go. It's open source and it's modern. It's awesome. updated. Um, and then if you're in the, the Greenville or upstate South Carolina area or not too far away and you have an interest in, uh, you know, hacking or, you know, exploration of open source technologies or an overall technologist, I mean, DEFCON 864 is really what uh, we've we've attracted as folks so 3d printing to uh, rfid you know like what can i do with physical badges and security systems and are there weaknesses in them like we have folks that are
0: really passionate into those areas and we check them out we explore them that's that's awesome eric i i thank you so much for for coming on and just letting it all out there because it's it's a storyline of somebody who got into gaming at an early age and used like had tendrils into that world and then crossed them right over the bridge into a professional setting i mean that's it's beautiful and the fact that you never let go of the mud it's still there it's still being worked on it's it's I wish more people had that kind of um, heart for their passions because a lot of people be like, Oh, I'm so passionate about this thing and then like a you know, a year or two later you are like, meh. Yeah. And it's a strange thought when I think back that
2: that the career I've had was in a way produced through my hobby and, and work playing on a mud. It's, but
0: stranger things have happened, so Hey, okay. but hey, it, it it turned out awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, but you know, thank thank you once again, and uh, until the next episode.